Welcome to Screw the Hierarchy, episode 97. This is your host, Deb Falzoy. And this week, I'm talking about how one songwriter navigated sexism in the music industry. I'm talking this week with Ellen Violette, who now works with authors. And she's going to talk about how she worked in the music industry with so much sexism and the, the lessons that she learned from that. Are you ready to hear what Ellen has to say? More after this. If you're a target of workplace abuse and want to break free of the grips of abusive power, you've found your place. I'm your host, Deb Falzoy, and the podcast begins now. Before I get started today, I want to talk about Patreon. I have a new Patreon account at patreon.com slash screw the hierarchy, and I have a really quick survey on there about what kind of rewards you'd like. Everything from early access to episodes to exclusive episodes, behind-the-scenes content. All right, so what's your um, background in the music industry? Um, Well, actually, I was in graduate school in architecture, and I was hating it. And I became agoraphobic. I couldn't leave my house. And it was because my life was just a mess. It wasn't my life. I was living a life that everybody else wanted me to live. And my body was saying no. And I had to go into therapy. And I was lucky that the therapist was right down the street because that was about as far as I could get. I, you know, I was so phobic and I was just having panic attacks all the time. And I started reading her some of my poetry and um, journals. And she said to me, have you ever thought of being a songwriter? And I said, no. I said, that's not even in the realm of possibility in the world I grew up in with doctors and lawyers and judges. And, um, And so she said, well, I think you'd be good at it. And as it so happened, I was living right down the street from UCLA Extension and they had a really great program. And so I enrolled and I quit architecture graduate school. Um, I broke up with my boyfriend who I, I loved him, but we were not the right fit. And I not just loved him, but he had a great family. So I was breaking up with the whole family. So it was really hard. My parents thought I was absolutely insane because I had already gone through two years. I only had one left. And their idea was, well, you'll have it to fall back. And I was like, you don't understand. I'm never going to become an architect. I'm never going to work in an architecture office. Never, never, never. And so anyway, so I went to UCLA Extension. I studied with Buddy Kay. And my idols were like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. And I remember writing lyrics. And Buddy said, you're never going to make it as a songwriter because your lyrics are too Joni Mitchell-ish. And I was like, okay, um, I like her lyrics a lot. And I understand what he was saying, which is as an outside songwriter, you can't write artisty songs, supposedly. I don't know that that's really always true, but that's what he was saying. But my immediate reaction to that was, I'll show you. I'll show you. And that was the beginning. I just, I fell in love with it. The agoraphobia went away. And um, I started joining. I joined the, what was it called? The National Academy of Songwriters. 
uh, up in Hollywood, they don't exist anymore. And I, I worked with them and I, I worked in the office at one point, uh, I think I was secretary or something, you know, and they would have their meetings. And um, songwriter showcase and the songwriter showcase. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I mean, people who that came up to the, up through it were people like Stevie Nicks and Diane Warren and uh, Len Chandler and John Brahaney. And they were wonderful and they believed in me. And that was super important. And so that was it. And I just kept going from there. And then eventually uh, I, it caught the eye of a independent publisher, Monica Benson. So I worked with her. And at one point I was actually offered a deal from three different people, uh, David Kirschenbaum, Skip Drinkwater and Monica Benson. And we tried to uh, play one against the other and they all fell through. So I actually should have taken the one with Monica because she was the one that really believed in me and knew me. So if I had to do it again, that's what I would have done. But it didn't matter. I mean, we, she still, um, she was still my publisher. I just wasn't getting paid up front. <laughs> so, so that's what happened. And then you said you, you were uh, Grammy nominated. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. So again, I mean, what I found out, I mean, first of all, there was so much heartbreak over the years. I mean, there isn't even enough time to tell you all the different terrible things that happened. But um, one of the things that happened was we had written this other song and I'll just tell you a couple of stories. Uh, it was called Airtight and it, they loved the song and there was a new group, which I'll will remain nameless. And uh, they played, I guess, different songs for radio and radio picked Airtight as the single. And they went into the studio and 48 tracks had just started. They had just started using 48 tracks and they had this producer who used all 48 tracks and ruined the song in the production. And so then um, they said, well, they were scrapping it because of the production. And we said, well, why don't you let us produce it since you love the demo and that's like well you don't have any credits we're like yeah but we produced it <laughs> and you loved it and radio says it's a hit and they didn't go for it so they dropped it and you never heard of the group again so you know what I learned is that it's always very inside another uh, one is I have a very good friend named Terry Steele and Terry Steele wrote here and now for Luther Vandross and as a matter of fact, we just heard it the other night on The Voice. And I'm telling you, I mean, it still gives me chills to this day. He, he played it at our wedding. Uh, it was just fabulous. And um, after Here and Now, he was offered a record deal. And he loved my writing. And he wanted me to write with him and for him, which I did with some other people. And again, uh, we actually had this, you know, celebration at this uh fancy hotel in Beverly Hills and you know everything was so exciting and then they, it didn't get on the record um, but his didn't get on the record either and what I learned is that there was so much money to be made that they would keep it as much inside as they could that was the bottom line it's like you were not going to get on uh, unless by an act of God you know I mean the stars had to align before you're going to get on and uh, he couldn't even get his own songs on. And, and my heart really broke for him because I remember he came to my house and he played me the single and he was all excited. And I said, 
I got to say, Terry, you know, it's okay, but there was an issue in the hook. It wasn't quite right. It didn't quite, it didn't quite connect. And I was right. You know, it didn't, it didn't become a number one single. Um, but when I got the Grammy nomination, the stars aligned. So what happened was Monica was my produce was my publisher. Uh, her husband, who now is a big uh, producer, was not in those days, but he was on his way. This was before Daughtry, before any of his other you know, big acts. Um, he was signed to a management company that also had signed Andre Fisher. And Andre Fisher was producing Diane Schur. And they needed one more song. And it was between our song and somebody else's song. Now, I don't know, you know what their connections were or if they didn't have any connections, but we did. And we got the cut. And it was Grammy nominated. And it was up against Natalie Cole and Nat King Cole, Unforgettable. And I don't really know why they did that. I mean, that song was also on Diane Schur's record. So he put it on both records. So I don't know why he did that. But anyway, that's what happened. So we didn't win. But actually, I was on a call yesterday and she made me finally take it out of the packaging because we moved six months ago. And here is my little plaque. Can you see it? See the Grammy? Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, so that's it. That's yeah, cool. I'm going to put it up on the wall behind me. Um, so I'm curious about your experience with sexism in this industry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, first of all, you know, when you're up and coming, you've got to support yourself. And what I did was I actually went to massage school and I became a licensed masseuse. The problem that I found was that I was meeting mostly, pretty much, well, mostly, yeah, pretty much mostly men in the record industry. And in those days, they didn't see massage as healing, that somehow it was sexual. And so that didn't last very long. So I went through all that training that I was like, I, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. So that was the first thing. And then um, what we did instead was actually, we eventually ended up, um, my parents actually, it was their idea that we build a studio in the house I grew up in. So that's what we eventually did was we, we made money from our recording studio. But um, what was I gonna say about that? Um, oh, so, the, so talking about sexism, um, I don't even remember where I met him, but I met this producer and he was in the studio with somebody who was making hit records and they needed a lyric change. And I started out as a lyricist and I was just there. And so, you know, I offered to help and they let me help. Um, I don't even remember if they gave me credit or not, but I remember how excited I was. You know, this was this was like a big deal. And, uh, you know, I thought there would be more. Well, what turned out happening was he, I was interested in him as a producer. He was interested in me as a girlfriend. And actually, um, that is what broke it up. So, you know, if I didn't want to be his girlfriend, he wasn't going to help me. And I was really disappointed because I thought we were good friends. So that was, you know, 
that was a bummer. And then there was another time I was actually in a, I mean, this is a long time ago. You have to remember, you know, this is like, I started in 1979 and I really hit my stride like 1985 we're talking about. So it's a long time ago, but um, I remember I got, I have always my whole life gotten hit on a lot. So um, when I met my husband, which was in 1985, I started taking him everywhere with me. He, he was my cover, you know, and um, I used to drive my dad crazy. Why do you take him to these meetings? You shouldn't be taking these meetings. And he just didn't understand. I took him to the meetings really to protect me. And uh, so that was that. But I remember being at a bar before I met him. There were places that writers hung out. One of those places was La Dome you know, on sunset, um, some other places. And I remember being at the bar and striking up a conversation with somebody. And then I don't remember when it happened, but then he offered, oh, I love this one. He offered me to come live with him at his house in Malibu, you know, and he would pay me so much money a month to do that. And, uh, you know, and by the way, it would help me, you know, with my career. No. <laughs> So there was that. And, uh, and then there was another one where somebody wanted me to go, somebody who also was uh, involved with a major record company um, was instrumental in getting a super, super big act, uh, their first deal. And he wanted me to get in a car with him and go to a studio with him supposedly in Compton. I don't know if you're familiar with LA, but it's not a very safe part of LA. And again, I said, well, I'll go if my husband can come. And he said, no. So the minute he said, no, my husband couldn't come. It's like, no, forget it. I'm not going. What was, what was the effect of all of this on you? Or like both personally, emotionally, but also like in your work and career decisions and like, how do you feel it impacted you? Yeah. I mean, Maybe it did impact me, like my dad said, you know, maybe because I wouldn't show up alone. Maybe, you know, they thought it was strange or whatever, but I didn't care. So I was just going to do it my way. And I believed in my own talent and I wasn't going to let it stop me. And so I just kept going, you know, but I took precautions. I mean, I did do make certain decisions so that I would feel safe. And I think everybody has to do that. You have to feel safe. And then the other thing is, you know, when you, I mean, there are a lot of really great people out there. I mean, I was very blessed that when we did get the cut, uh, the person, the producer that um, did that demo was Peter Bonetta. And, you know, he's a very up, straight up guy and um, there was no nonsense. And so really what I learned is, you know, when you're really working with the professionals and people who aren't sleazy, that's not going to happen. And so you just keep, you know, gravitating towards those people and staying away from the ones that are not worth it. Was it hard to find those people in the music industry or was it? Well, it's hard period. I mean, that's what I was saying is like, you got to have champions. You got to have people who believe in you. You got to have people who are, who are pushing you. I mean, it's hard enough, like all the heartbreak that we had so many times. I mean, I had another one, somebody called us. uh, It was from Motown actually. And it was a Friday night. And I get this, I get this uh, in those days voicemail and it goes literally, I mean, it was like right out of a movie. The guy says, I'm a, you know, sit down. I'm about to change your life. This song, whichever one it was, is going to be the hit single. It's going to be on the cover. And, you know, this whole thing. 
And Monday morning he was fired and it was over. <laughs> you know, and then we had another one where the guy loved the song, but his boss said, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't hear it. But if you want to go with it, go with it. And the guy was chicken and said no. So, I mean, you know, there are just so many things. And, and I remember one A&R person, I won't, I won't even say what, uh, another major label. Um, I remember having a meeting and this person said, our job is to say no, and your job is to convince us why we should say yes. And you're like, really? I mean, you need good songs, you know? But that person also sat there and took notes on my song, which I really wasn't paying attention to. And uh, then they said, well, I love the lyrics, but I don't really like the music. And I said, okay, you know, okay. And then, and then they would say something like, um, well, why don't you bring me a song like this? And then they'd play an artist song that you would never get arrested with, with that song, because it's an artist song. Like it goes back to what Buddy Kay was saying. So, you know, but then they're saying, well, it's already a hit. And so it's easy for them to say, oh, well, give me a song like this. Or once we wrote, I could get used to this, which is the Grammy song um, coming back to me and saying, write me another one like this. I can't write you another one like that. That's like saying, have another kid that looks exactly like your other kid. I mean, the gene, you know, it's always going to come out different, you know? So, I mean, you can't, and as an artist, you don't want to, you know, as a songwriter, you don't want to, you always want to be, you know, creating something new and different and unique. So, you know, but as a songwriter, also one that, you know, you hear for certain artists that they could conceivably do. So, yeah. So, like I said, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's funny. I mean, my dad was really sexist. So I grew up with sexism. I mean, all around me. And I guess I never really felt totally safe anyway. So it wasn't like a new experience <laughs> to, to go into the music business and feel that way. And I think as women, most of us feel that way anyway. I mean, I was I was shocked and I wasn't shocked. Like when the Me Too movement started and all the people coming out of the woodwork and saying, yeah, I've been sexually assaulted and um, I have been sexually assaulted and it wasn't in the music business. And it was by the husband of a friend at a party. <laughs> so you just never know. You, know. you just never know. Wow. So sorry to hear that. Um... Yeah, but I don't, like I said, I don't let it stop me. I do things that I think, you know, keep me safe or as safe as possible, but you still have to keep living your life, you know? And I will say maybe there have been things that I haven't been as forceful with that I would have if I hadn't experienced what I've experienced. Yeah. I mean, you really can never say whether it affected it or not other than if you just gave up because of that, which I never did. And I've ultimately always believed that a really great song, if you can keep going and if the demos sound right, uh, I have one song that I have no doubt is a, is a classic, but the demo didn't, it kind of, it, it didn't work. Like the male singer was an R and B singer and the female singer was a country singer. Right. And so even though it's been years since we wrote the song, I said to my husband, I really hear that we need to go back in the studio and redo this demo, you know, and, and get it heard because ballads don't go out of style. It's just, you know, how you do it. 
yeah, that that would be interesting. What what um I'm curious about any other takeaways that you have. I'm I'm struck by your um your your like focus on your own safety. I think that's I, I love hearing that. Um, I'm just curious uh, what your what any other takeaways you've had from navigating this kind of sexist culture, both in the music industry and then also uh, you know anything working for yourself we haven't talked yet about. yeah well I'll tell you something that's really interesting I was just listening to Rachel Rogers yesterday she wrote a book called we should all be millionaires and when she was giving the statistics of women making money I was blown away I mean she was saying something like only seven percent of women ever make over a hundred thousand a year uh millionaires and it's only like two percent or something like that and as a book coach now I, and strategist, I have done many masterminds with both men and women, and the women have issues with money that the men don't have. I'm not saying all women have them, but a lot of women have them. And, you know, some of it has to do with the way that we're socialized. And, and also, you know, maybe it is true that you get treated differently as a woman in some ways. I, I don't know, because I'm not inside their heads. But I know that I had one client as a book coach where um, he acted very inappropriately. And I was telling a friend of mine because I was really upset. And she said, if you were a man, he would never have talked to you like that. And until that moment, I had never thought about it because I have never felt held back in my business as a woman, this business. You know, so I don't know. In the book. But, but what I'm saying is, is I think there's just a cultural thing that does hold women back, maybe in ways we don't even know, you know. And definitely, like I'll say in the rock world, too, that's, an, you know, it was definitely, I definitely had a harder time with producers in the rock world. That's a very male culture, not as much now as it was then. I mean, but I mean, then you didn't even have, you know, you had Sheila E and that was about it. Like you didn't even have players, you know, who were women. Uh, Hart was the only other one, I think, in those days. And then you said as a book coach, you don't see it as much or is it like working for yourself? It's lessened or uh, I, I guess it would be. Hard. No, well, what it is, is that first of all, I've been doing this 17 years and you kind of get radar you know, when you talk to a lot of people and you get a sense of who you vibe with, who you would, who you want to work with. And so, I mean, some of my best clients are males, but they're not alpha males. They're creative, you know, liberals who love women you know, and, and respect women. So, uh, and also like in social media, I mean, you can have a social media that's filled with hate. I just block those people. I don't have hate in my, you know, Twitter account and my Facebook. I, I just don't see it because I don't tolerate it. And it doesn't mean that I don't have friends that are not that are conservative because I do. Um, one of my business partners is, is a libertarian and is I mean, there are things that he thinks at times I think. Ay, ay, ay. And uh, he and he thinks the same about me. But we love each other because we talk to each other and we listen to each other and you know, there's no hate. I mean, the whole thing, as far as I'm concerned, and, you know, if you look at my catalog of songs, they're about love. 
and not just about relationships, but I mean, like one of them that I wrote, it's called We're Here to Love. And, you know, it's about everybody loving each other. So uh, hate just doesn't get us anywhere. And I think that's one of the really powerful things about music is that it brings people together. I love that. Um, any other, any other um, like takeaways from your experience that you want to share? I would just tell people to, you know, women to be careful, you know, it's like value yourself. Um, you know, when that thing in your gut doesn't feel right or in your chest, say no, no is a complete sentence. And I didn't used to totally understand what that meant, but I do now, because what it means is, is you don't have to justify why you're saying no. It's like, if it's not right for you, no is enough. You don't have to explain, you know, if it's not comfortable, if it doesn't feel right, or even if it's just not for you, you know, just say no. I love that. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much, Ellen. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your, your insights. This is great. Well, I really hope that, you know, from sharing my story, people see that I still got a Grammy nomination and I said no. So my message is, you know, believe in yourself, take your own path, um, take care of yourself and don't give up. You know, don't let anybody tell you you can't because you're a woman. No, forget it. Thank you for listening to Screw the Hierarchy. If you feel like you need more help, I have a free guide to recovery steps at dignitytogether.org slash targets and a sign up for daily boosts through your inbox at the same place. All of the content in this podcast was created and edited by yours truly, Deb Falzoy, and the music you heard is from Kevin McLeod. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.